Welcome to the West Side Audio Message Podcast. We hope you enjoy today's message. And if you're looking for more ways to connect with West Side Assembly of God, feel free to check us out at www.westsideag.org. You'll find all the information about our service times, upcoming events, and opportunities for you to plug in and get connected with West Side Assembly of God. Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved. It is the power of God. Notice one of the important things he has said here is the message of the cross. We have shortened that for convenience to talking about the cross. And we sing about the cross. How many hymns can you think of just right off the bat that are written about the cross? We sing the old rugged cross and at the cross. But really it's not the cross. It's the message of the cross. And once again, what we have today with this T symbol representing this cross probably bore no resemblance at all to the cross that Jesus was crucified on, Hollywood's perspective notwithstanding. It was probably more an X shaped uh, structure in those days, rather than this would not have been a common cross in those days. So that's another thing we've modified and uh, modernized in our concept. But Paul said accurately, it's the message of the cross. And so when he was talking about, and he might shorten that to referring to the cross, but he's always referring to the significance of the cross, what it stands for. Uh, The message of the cross. And he said in this one statement here that the message of the cross is, first of all, it's foolish to some people. It's foolish specifically to those who are lost, those who are perishing, he uses the word. But then he says, to us who are being saved, which is an interesting phrase, we're being saved. How many of you realize this morning as you're sitting there, you're in the process of being saved? You're not there yet. And we might talk loosely about the time I was saved, but it was an awakening in your life where you began that journey for God. Our Christianity is a journey, day to day, week to week. We haven't necessarily arrived, but we're getting there, aren't we? To those who are being saved, we understand the message of the cross is the power of God. It's foolish to some people, the message of the cross. Because I would suggest, first of all, they don't understand how the death of one person can atone for the sins of the world. That doesn't compute with them. They just can't put it all together. There's a spiritual truth there that carnal minds cannot grasp. How can he die 2,000 years ago for me and that have anything to do with me being saved? It's foolishness to them. Next, they think it's foolish because they might even say something like this. If he could not save himself... Remember how they challenged him on the cross? He cannot save himself. If he could not save himself, how is he going to save you? The third 
reason they might think it's foolish. They might argue that they think the story of the resurrection to be pure fantasy. Well, I can understand that. You know, here we are talking about the story uh, of an individual, a person who walked here on earth, and he was crucified and put in the tomb. Three days later, they go to check the tomb, and the rock is moved, the stone is moved, the body is gone, and we make claims that he came alive again and he ascended into heaven. Now, it's not just as though we are going to pretend that everybody we tell that to isn't going to say, yeah, right. But you have to, you have, to have an element of faith, and I don't mean blind faith. I mean you have to have an element of faith, something that has built in you the reliability of God's word, that it says this, and you have come to understand why you can believe it and trust it. To be able to grasp this. Because first of all, if you don't believe the Bible, you don't have any reason to trust it, you're probably not going to believe the story of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus either. So the message of the cross is to some people pure foolishness. It's to those who are perishing. And by the way, if we're in the process of being saved, they're in the process of perishing. They're decaying all along. But then why is the message of the cross offensive? Paul said in Galatians 5.11, if I were no longer preaching salvation through the cross of Christ, or that's a very short way of saying through the suffering, the sacrifice, the atoning work of Jesus Christ, through the cross of Christ, then he said no one would be offended. Now we have to take the, the flip side of that. If he were preaching salvation through the cross of Christ, people would be offended. That's the obvious statement in the opposite way. But he is arguing in this entire chapter, this uh, Galatians 5, about the issue of legalism and specifically the issue of circumcision, which was a big deal to the Jews. That was a physical mark in their body that represented a, a godliness, a holiness, and obedience. And it became so important to the Jews that even whenever the Gentiles began to get saved and the Jewish Christians who had, who had began to convert away from their Judaism into this new Christianity, when the Gentiles were getting saved, they were demanding that the Gentiles get circumcised because they couldn't let go of their old traditions. They were not understanding salvation was just through the cross and it wasn't through the works of the flesh. Paul had trouble with that. And so Paul is telling them in Galatians over this issue of the legalism, he said, now if I were not preaching about salvation just through the cross of Christ, people wouldn't be offended. But he said, I am preaching salvation through the cross of Christ, and people are offended. So we have this revelation in Paul's own writings. He recognized not only did some people dismiss this whole story of salvation, the atoning work of Jesus Christ, as being foolish, but some even went so far as to be totally offended by the message of the cross. Why do groups of non-believers fight so hard in this day and age to have the cross removed from public places and public view. 
here in the United States. Now, these are just a sampling of the things that demonstrate how people are offended by the cross. Why are the atheists suing to have the cross removed from ground zero? Where the 9-11 attacks occurred. You remember that steel beam that stood there when they were clearing away to the debris? It was in the form of a cross. And they just thought how appropriate as a memorial. The cross has in a Christian a nation that has been uh, traditionally very heavily populated by Christians. The cross has become a very uh, popular symbol as a memorial to those who have passed. It's just a part of our Christian heritage coming out. So they kept that, and it became a part of the museum. But the atheists don't want it there. They're offended by it. Why are the atheists forcing... Why did they already force this mother in California to remove this little memorial cross near the exit ramp on Highway 15 at Lake Elsinore in California? It was a memorial to her son who had died there, and the atheists did not like the cross there. It offended them. Why did they put the pressure on her and force her to remove that cross? Or why did the atheists want the cross in front of the police station in Searcy, Arkansas, removed? Or why do the atheists want the cross removed from the city seal in DeLand, Florida? Why do they want the Vietnam Memorial Cross removed? Why do they want the memorial cross removed from the marine base in Camp Pendleton? In Steubenville, Ohio, the emblem of the city features a, features a skyline silhouette of several buildings that represents their community. Some office buildings, and, and one of them is obviously, uh, with a steep roof and a little cross on top, a, a silhouette of a church. It's just one of the many buildings on the, on the landscape, on the horizon. And that's a part of their city symbol, their seal. The atheists don't like that. I guess they can't sleep at night. There's a silhouette of a cross on a church, on a city seal that's been stamped onto paper somewhere in town. Drives them crazy. Why are people offended by the cross? Why do the atheists want to remove a World War I memorial, a cross, a 42... 40-foot-tall peace cross in Bladensburg, Maryland. It's because the cross offends some people. The, and it's not just the cross. It's what the cross speaks. It's the message of the cross that offends them. So modern-day atheists hone their attacks against Christianity. And one of their favorite tactics is to attack the story of the crucifixion of Jesus. Now, during the Easter season in a little town of Streeter, Illinois, just 117 miles east of us, slightly southeast, the Streeter Freedom Association puts up a display in the public park with three wooden crosses and a sign. They get a permit to do this in the park. Three crosses and a wooden sign that says, Jesus died for your sins. Last year, 
two years ago in 2012, a group of atheists operating under the name Freedom From Religion Foundation put up an 8 by 13 banner in the public park that said, Nobody died for your sins. Jesus Christ is a myth. So here you have in the same city park, and they got a permit for that too. In the same city park, on one part of the park, you have the three crosses, Jesus died for your sins. And then you've got the atheist on the other side of the park that Jesus did not die for your sins. He's a myth. Now, this is not about permits and rights. This is about attitude. This is about the obvious offense that people are taking at the notion of Jesus Christ, our sacrifice, our atoning work. Now, what is wrong with the message? Somebody here explain it to me. What is wrong with the message that Jesus died for our sins? How many of you ever sinned? I expected every hand. I'm going to see some people afterwards. We do sin. We have failed. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And are we in agreement today when you sin? And I think everybody understands sin. Are we in agreement today when you sin, you feel bad about it? It's called guilt. And what is wrong with the message that Jesus died Take care of the penalty and the guilt of your sins. What's wrong with that? Is, that? is that a bad message? Is that a mean message? Is that a depressing message? But it's a message that says there is a moral standard and you've broken it and that's offensive to people. They don't want to think that there is such a thing as really a sin for which we will have to pay for that sin, or somebody has to pay. So the whole thing starts getting offensive. And the atheist might say, I made a mistake, or they might even say, I have sinned against society. I've sinned against the the civil laws. And they might even think that they're talking about certain moral codes that are just obvious. But there is no moral law without a moral lawgiver. It just doesn't exist. And there certainly is no absolute moral law without an absolute moral law giver. But it's offensive when you say Jesus Christ died for your sins for somebody to react so violently against that to deny that truth and deny the reality of Jesus Christ. So they love to spin the story of Christ's crucifixion. And they even go so far, I'm talking about the atheists, to imply due to the nature of the crucifixion story, the sacrifice story of Jesus Christ, the atheists love to say, God, your God, is a child abuser. Now, isn't that kind of low? Because he allowed his own son to be crucified. What parent would do that as they're trying to wax moral and righteous? Therefore, applying that to God, he's a child abuser because they are offended, what? By the message of the cross. It's understandable why people are offended by the cross because the message of the cross is twofold. Simply this, you're guilty beyond any description. 
and you are loved beyond anything you can imagine. Two, twofold message of the cross. Now let's deal with the first one first, because they don't get the second one. They are so preoccupied with the first message that you're guilty that they never get to the point of understanding the second one, you're loved. So it's understandable why people are offended by the cross. It is the confrontational nature of the cross that either will bring people to repentance or it will drive them to bitterness. And this cross, the message of the cross that offends so many people can be described in part by some of these things. First of all, it declares that I am alienated from my God because of my own rebellious actions. And you think about that, and people get offended. They want to think of a God of love from whom we cannot be alienated. For who of you would alienate your child because they made a mistake? The cross reminds us that regardless of my very best effort to be a decent person, I am a complete failure. And people don't like to hear that. The cross cries out in graphic detail when we study what Jesus went through about the horrible judgment, but not just that he endured because the message of the cross is that was your judgment. Your sins were so vile that that's what you deserved. And that's offensive. Nobody wants to admit, I'm that bad. But you were bad enough that you should have been on the cross. That was your punishment. That was your judgment. And it angers people. The cross declares us guilty. The cross shows us every hardship that Christ suffered. The shame, the pain, the humiliation. And we're confronted with the ugly truth that that too was all for us. It wasn't his doing. The cross executes the appropriate judgment for our failures. The cross reminds us, I'm doomed without the hope that Jesus Christ can bring to me. But God understood the offensive nature of the message of the cross. He understood the offensive nature of a Savior who would die in our stead and what the implications of that were. Isaiah prophesied centuries earlier by saying that when Christ would come, he would essentially, to some people, he would be a stumbling block. He would be a rock of offense. People were offended by his perfection. No, they were jealous because they couldn't catch him. They laid traps and snares for him. They tried to catch him in his words. They tried to find some imperfection. You know, people are good at finding your weakness. They're good at finding the dirt on your life, aren't they? Just run for political office and find out if they don't scour your life for everything you've ever done, interview your friends, interview your family, check your records. They're going to find out where the dirt is in your life. And as thorough as people can be in taking somebody down, they tried every way to take Jesus down. They could not find any problems in Jesus. And it's all summarized 
Whenever he's standing before Pilate and they're trying to make a case that Pilate sees that they don't have a case. And he is the one that had to say, I find no fault in this man. That would have been different if that would have been the testimony of a believer. But that was the testimony of a non-believer said, you don't have a case, folks. He's perfect. They were offended and jealous of his popularity. They were offended by his simple message of grace. They were offended that he should call himself the Son of God. They were offended that he was willing to die a criminal's death. They couldn't comprehend their Messiah if he claimed to be the Messiah. They couldn't comprehend him coming as a a baby born in a manger, raised by working class people coming out of Nazareth. Nothing like, nothing fit to their concept of their coming Messiah. And they were offended. And then, of course, the second portion of that message of the cross is not just that we're guilty, but that we're loved. Oh, what love written upon the cross. No greater love has any person than to lay down his life for a friend. No greater love. Yet while we were still enemies, not that God was alienated from us, but we were alienated from God. We were not considered friends of God as far as a two-way relationship. We were enemies of God. He was seeking us out. He wanted our fellowship. He wanted our friendship. But the fact is we didn't reciprocate. And while we were yet sinners, while we were still enemies, while we were working against him, Jesus said, I will go to the cross and die for them. In that state of being offensive to God and trying to turn him away, He still loved us so much. He died for us. The message of the cross is love like you've never known. The second question I ask today is, why did Jesus die on the cross? These people who don't understand this whole thing, we have to answer their question. Why? Why would he do that? What's it all about? Well, Christ's sacrificial death was the fulfillment of types of, and shadows from the Old Testament, those things that happened in the Old Testament that looked forward to the fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And to understand the history of mankind from creation through the fall, don't get nervous, I'm not going to cover it all this morning. But to understand basically the framework is to understand why Jesus died for us. So let me run through it very clearly. First of all, the wages of sin is death. That's one reason why he died on the cross. Something has to die when we go wrong. And this goes back to the story of Adam and Eve. They were created perfect. They were created sinless. Yet they didn't waste any time in rebelling against God and his commandment, do not eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Their disobedience was a sin. Sin came and death began to be set in motion for them. From the moment they ate the forbidden fruit, they began to decay. They began to die. 
They would experience at that point what they previously did not have to experience. But because they failed, now they're going to experience pain, sickness, decay. They would be in danger from natural disasters and poisonous creatures and even the actions of other people due to the nature of sin. Their own children would become corrupt. Cain would murder Abel. And sin came upon mankind and everything began to fall apart rapidly because sin opened the door for every evil and every danger and every discomfort that we know in this world. Now, here's a few nuggets of wisdom we can glean from this narrative about Adam and Eve. Going back to Genesis, God created uh, man. He took woman out of the sight of man. Uh, They were there to tend the garden. He said, you can eat of all the trees in the garden that you want to, but Do not eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. It's simple. What part of that do you not get? Every tree you can have. So as as it turns out, that's the one tree they wanted more desperately than all the other trees that were available to them. With a little help and enticement from Satan through the form of the serpent, who challenges them and says, now why do you think God wouldn't want you to taste of that tree? They don't have a good theological answer. It's just because he said, no, you know what? I don't always have a good theological answer for why you shouldn't do things. I don't always have a good scientific answer for why you shouldn't do things. I don't have a good practical answer for why you shouldn't do certain things, except God said don't. Period. And people try to argue the issues from all different directions, but if God said no, it's no. That's, that's it. It's very simple. And Yeah, but it doesn't hurt. That's not the point. God said no. And so that's all it comes down to. But they were not skilled at debate at this point. This was their first debate. So Satan tells them, well, I'll tell you exactly why. Because God doesn't want you to know what he knows. They got interested. God knows good and evil. He doesn't want you to know the difference between good and evil. He is hiding something from you that is very special. And you should want to be like God. That was part of his allurement. You'll be like God. You'll know good and evil. And so Adam and Eve talked about that. What do you think about what the snake said? I don't know. Sounds kind of interesting. Why would God withhold that from us? And finally, they broke down and they forgot. God said, don't do it. They just ignored that, laid it aside. And, and Eve took the opportunity to eat of the fruit. Then Adam found out she had ate, and he ate too. It's all moved so rapidly. I've got so many questions when I get there. Because I don't understand that. Maybe he was afraid God wouldn't create him another woman. I don't know what's going on here. If we're going down, we're going down together because I'm not going to live with the bears and the lions. I found a woman and she's so much... I'm not going back. They fell. Now, from this whole narrative in the fall of man, here's a few nuggets of wisdom I think we need to take notice of. Number one, apart from God, we do stupid... We do stupid things. Can, can everybody agree with that? 
guilty, naked, and ashamed of their failure, they hid themselves and quickly began to fashion crude covering for themselves with fig leaves. Now, I've wondered why seemingly intelligent people do stupid things. There's no question Adam and Eve were intelligent beings. But they did stupid things. The first stupid decision they said, they did was, God says we can eat of any tree except this one. Let's eat of this one. The second stupid thing that they did was, now that we've eaten, let's hide from God. The third stupid decision they make is they said, we need to cover our nakedness so God won't notice. So when they finally came before God, they had sewn fig leaves together, standing there with this stupid-looking fig leaf suit, hoping God doesn't notice something has changed. And the reason, furthermore, that that was so stupid that horticulturalists will tell us fig leaves happen to be very scratchy. And making coverings out of these leaves, the horticulturists say, would have been the equivalent of wearing sandpaper underwear. Adam and Eve are on a roll. So here they are standing there in their new suits, itching and scratching like mad. And God reading them their rights. And God has pity on these people with the inferior quality underwear. And he says to Adam and Eve, this is not going to work. He slaughters an animal and gets some nice supple leather. And he clothes them. And he teaches them right away how to survive long term. Fig leaves aren't going to work. You're going to need some skins, soft to the body. But in the process of showing them what it would take for them to be able to deal with the results and the fruits of their failure, an animal died. And Adam and Eve were not accustomed to that because they were living in a perfect place where nothing died. So God slaughters an animal, takes the skin, and covers them, and they cannot forget something paid an ultimate price for our failure. This animal died. It was not the animal's fault. But the blood was shed. The skins were taken. It was a covering for man's sins. The next thing we can learn from this is our disobedience never produces anything good for us. I wonder what Adam and Eve expected to gain. I've really sat down and thought about this. What were you really expecting to gain from eating of this fruit? They had everything anybody could have wanted. They literally lived in paradise. Now, we we don't live in paradise. There are some places on earth that people call paradise. Hawaii, Paradise Island. But it's not paradise. It's just a little nicer than Iowa. 
But it's not paradise. And all these exotic islands and places that they call paradise, they have their dangers. They have their flaws. They have their poisonous creatures. They might be susceptible to hurricanes, typhoons. They have dangerous sea creatures. If you just want to go wading in one of those pools and you step on the wrong thing, it'll kill you. Paradise is full of dangers down here. But this was paradise. There were no dangers. They had it all. It was perfect. What do you expect to gain when you have it all and you disobey? There's nothing to gain. There's everything to lose. But people still do that today. When they have things going well for them, but they just have to have something else. What's the gain? Or as the Bible says, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? There is no gain. Bad deal of the century. So what was so compelling? Why was it so important to know good and evil? But they were willing to gamble it all away. But it's still that same way with people today. The nature of man seems to desire to have what he does not have. He seems to desire what he should not have. Whatever is forbidden is the very thing that he clamors for. Because that's the nature of rebellion. The third thing we learn is you can't hide from God. How silly they were crouching in the bushes. How long did they think God would continue to allow them to think they were hiding? Millions of years? Well, where are those people? I look behind every bush and every tree. You can't hide from God. You can't run from God. You might leave this sanctuary today and say, I'm never going back to the church. But don't think God's restricted to here. He's following you. And when you get there, He's already waiting on you. You can't hide from God. It just doesn't work. Number four, you cannot provide adequate covering for your own sins. At best efforts, all your homespun remedies are going to come across like scratchy fig leaves. It just won't work. The institution of sacrifice was the centerpiece of Jewish culture for hundreds of years. Even other godless religions adopted this element of sacrifice first established by God with Adam and Eve, except the sacrifices of the godless world became very crude, inhumane, and virtually meaningless. But in the Jewish sacrificial system, it had meaning. The sacrifices were made to acknowledge man's failures. The price of the blood was because of those failures. For centuries, regular sacrifices were made, and thousands, literally thousands of gallons of blood flowed from the altars throughout those centuries, testifying to this, that the sinfulness of man demands the necessity of a blood sacrifice. Number three, I state Jesus was the supreme sacrifice because all of those centuries of animal sacrifice by the Jews did nothing to bring a completion to the sacrifices. They had to do it all over again and again and again. And they were just being obedient and God honored their obedience, but it didn't take care of next year, did it? 
And they was right back there again. Now, you have to understand, we, we sometimes lump this whole sacrificial system together and get a little bit confused. But Adam and Eve saw this sacrifice of an animal to atone for their sins. And Cain and Abel came to a point in their life where they decided it was necessary to bring a sacrifice to God. So there's evidence that Adam and Eve had passed that on to their children that you need to bring sacrifice to God because we have failed. And it's the only thing that makes God happy is, is being obedient to this system. Something has to be sacrificed to him. So they were doing it. It was a very crude and, and elementary, rudimentary level of sacrifice. They didn't understand all the implications of it, but they were being obedient. But then we came to another level of sacrifice that is found in the story of the Passover. And this brought more focus to the sacrifice than the original sacrifice did. The other one was kind of general, very broad sweeping. Just in general, we understood somebody sinned, something died. But then we come to the story of Passover, where the Jews were being held as slaves in Egypt, and God's plan was to bring them out, the Israelites, out of Egyptian bondage. And as a final act of bringing them out after all of the plagues and wearing down Pharaoh, God told Moses, tell the people, here's the plan. You get a lamb, an unblemished, a spotless lamb. See, now this had never been required in the other sacrifices. The other sacrifices up to this point had just been an animal. Fruit and vegetables didn't get it. Cain found that out. Had to be the animal. And even beyond this point, there were annual sacrifices of bullocks that would take care of a priest or a community. Or there were sacrifices of a female lamb or a female goat. And that would take care of a person. And if people were poor and they couldn't afford the lamb, they could bring a a, a turtle dove. And so every level was allowed some sort of sacrifice. And every year, that's what they did. But then now it goes away from bullocks and goats and sheep and pigeons. And we get into another level of the sacrifice where God tells Moses, tell them, slaughter a perfect lamb. We've not seen this specification before. Nor have we understood more pointedly what the whole sacrifice was going to be about as it's fulfilled in Jesus. And he says, slaughter the lamb, spread the blood, paint the blood on the doorposts and on the header. Stay in the house, and I will pass through Egypt and kill all the firstborn in the land. Now, if you're in the house and you've got the blood applied, you will not die. This, this opened up a whole new understanding of how Jesus was going to be the fulfillment of all these sacrifices when he finally came to earth. Now, as a side note, you might take notice, and I've said this before, but sometimes it takes us two or three times to get something. There was no death angel. I know you've watched a lot of movies, and I know you've heard a lot of sermons, but there was no death angel. God said, I will pass through. It was God himself. There might have been some Jewish superstition about a death angel, but that's not the case. God himself passed through Egypt. And the firstborn were smitten. 
though it was not protected by the blood. Now you fast forward through all of the centuries to the time that Jesus came to earth. And John the Baptist, his forerunner, his cousin, goes around preaching about this one who is coming that is so holy, so perfect. I'm not worthy to even untie his shoes. And as John is preaching on one of these occasions, there's a little commotion. And he turns around and it happens to be Jesus. And John spins around and points and identifies, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And Jesus, in his sacrifice, was about to become so perfect and so complete that he would bring an end to the need of the annual sacrifice. The earlier crude sacrifice that something or somebody has to die was fulfilled in Jesus. But the more specific Passover sacrifice, the perfect lamb, he was the spotless lamb. He was the perfect lamb. He never sinned. He never had a bad attitude. You were never ashamed to be around him. He wasn't caught in places he shouldn't have been. He wasn't sneaking around and getting away with things. He was perfect. He was holy. He was pure. He was spotless. Insomuch that Peter himself had to write about him and said, He was the man that was perfect and spotless in whom there was found no guile. Nothing he ever said went down in history as being an embarrassment to his mission. So the perfect Lamb of God comes and he submits himself in death on the cross. And because it was a perfect sacrifice, it was a complete sacrifice. Gill's exposition on this statement by Peter, he committed no sin, no deceit was found in his mouth. Gill's exposition says, He was in the likeness of sinful flesh. He looked like a sinful man. He was born to a sinful woman. He was keeping company with sinful people, being himself a man of sorrows, greatly afflicted, afflicted, and at last put to death. He was accused of being a sinner by his enemies. He had all the sins of his people on him, which he bore and made satisfaction for, and were the reason for his sufferings, but... He had no sin, neither did he commit any in his life. The spotless Lamb of God, the perfect sacrifice. And by acknowledging his sacrifice for your sins, you are, in essence, applying the blood to your life. And God says, and I will pass over you. If people could just understand spiritual death... We know we're dying physically. We're born with a clock, and the clock runs out. People try to live life for all it's worth while they're alive. They try to extend their life, and we've made great advances, but we just can't keep the clock ticking forever. We all die. But what about spiritual death? Are we thinking about spiritual death? We know that we're dying. Young people are too full of life to think about dying, but you're dying. You are spending life 
day at a time, one hour at a time, and it's never to be retrieved. That's one less hour, one less day, one less week, one less month that you have. You're spending your life, and you're dying. You might think you have a lot of sand left in your hourglass. One of these days, you're going to wake up like the rest of us who are a little older than you and realize most of the sand in your hourglass is at the bottom. And you have a few grains left because we're all dying. But do you realize spiritual death is even more serious than physical death? To be apart from God is to be spiritually dead. Do people think about being spiritually dead? If you are not connected to God through Jesus Christ, you are dead in your sins, the Bible says. Do they not understand that those who die in their sins die for eternity? And the message of the cross of Christ is the hope of mankind. Jesus didn't just die for the Jews. He just didn't die for the ancient Palestinians of the first century. He died for everybody, for all mankind, for God so loved the world. And the world is wrecked by sin. But the message of the cross is salvation through Jesus Christ because he is the hope for every man, for every woman, for every child. And whenever he died on the cross and he gave his life a ransom for many, he opened up a way to God for all that are lost. Would you bow your heads?